We'll turn to Micah chapter 4. Micah, no, actually, I'm sorry, chapter 3, starting at verse 9. We'll stand to give honor to God's holy and infallible word. Micah 3, starting at verse 9. Now hear this, heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who abhor justice and twist everything that is straight, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with violent injustice. Her leaders pronounce judgment for a bribe. Her priests instruct for a price, and her prophets divine for money. Yet they lean on the Lord, saying, Is not the Lord in our midst? Calamity will not come upon us. Therefore, on account of you, Zion will be plowed as a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the temple will become high places of a forest. Let's pray together. Our glorious Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would guide and lead us, and guide me, help us, we pray, uh, as we hear the preaching of the word, and help me as I preach, that you would be honored, that Jesus Christ would be lifted up, and that you would build up your saints by the means of your holy word. For we ask these things in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. Very good uh, definition, I believe, for the word presume is to expect or assume, especially with confidence. Now, there's some debate between the distinction between an assumption or presumption. But here we have the definition of presume is to expect or assume, especially with confidence. Very often, people have confidence that's misplaced. Um, I have a a relatively new friend named Jay who's a retired lineman. And he was telling me a story of someone who was looking up in the sky or looking up toward the power lines where he was looking for the a power line that was going to be in, needed to be fixed. But he was so busy looking up as he was walking, he didn't see the power line that was in his path. And then he stepped into a live power line and electrocuted himself and died. So that's, and whether you want to call it an assumption or presumption, you're, you're making confidence, you're, 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 you're assuming that the danger is up there when it's right in front of you. And then because of that, you know, he, he's lost his life. Other men he, he was telling me about have uh, basically one of them has, is mentally, um, I guess you, he would describe it as mentally incapacitated and physically incapacitated the rest of his life. Um, and other people have lost their lives as well. Um, I thank God that I don't have a job where you make the littlest mistake and it could mean your life. That would be a lot, that'd be really stressful, I find. But Micah here is talking about those who, in this passage, are making wrong presumptions. They're presuming upon the Lord, upon them being in God's favor, and that God's going to help them, God's going to take care of them, and they're actually making a big mistake. 
Micah foretold of the coming judgment in this book. He's talking about a coming judgment, not just upon the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom, but both northern and southern kingdoms will be judged. And Micah here is giving them um, the report of that coming judgment. Let's look first at the sins of of government and religious leaders. Uh, if you remember back in the previous messages, there was a, a time where Micah is against, he's preaching against the government leaders, the rulers of the people. And then uh, our last sermon, he's pronouncing a judgment against the false prophets. But here, in today's text, he's lumping them together. He's making an accusation of sin against both government and religious leaders. But we're going to divide it up, and we're going to first look at God's rebuke against the Jewish leaders in government. Um, look at verse 9 and following. Now hear this, heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who abhor, that means to hate, justice, and twist everything that is straight, who built Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with violent injustice. Her leaders pronounce judgment for a bribe. Now imagine this. Government leaders who abhor, they hate justice. And they twist everything that's straight. Perhaps this might remind you of politicians who use what we call spin tactics. In other words... Some would say that they're spin doctors or masters of spin. In other words, they take the truth and they twist it. They turn it. They spin it. I do think the biblical language here is stronger. Twisting reminds you of something that's contorted. I hate to use this kind of vivid imagery, but sometimes uh, if someone has a, a limb that gets badly broken, it's contorted and twisted it, it looks disgusting and abnormal. And that's what we have here with this injustice. It's contorted and twisted. It, it doesn't look right. Um, earlier in verse 2, Micah said that such compromising leaders hate good and love evil. I would say that's a twisting of justice. To hate good and love evil. Now, even here in the Bible Belt, we have those um, in our community who want to sexualize young people, minors, um, and um, they, use, they do that with literature in the schools, in the public schools. They do that with literature in the public libraries. And uh, I talked to a, a sheriff's deputy, deputy about this, and I'm actually talking to a group of pastors about bringing this to... Uh, someone who's going to be more responsible in taking issue with this. I, I did even, I'm not representing the church in this, I'm representing myself, but I wrote to the DA of the state of Louisiana, and they, they sent me back a letter saying, well, an email, saying which laws are actually being broken by them practicing this. So I, I talked to just a sheriff's deputy about this, and, I, and I, I told him about what's going on, and his reply was, well, maybe that's a, freedom of speech issue. Maybe the library has a freedom of speech 
issue and why they can put out pornography for the sake of children. They're exercising freedom of speech. That's a twisting of justice. And it's really a twisting of the First Amendment. Do you think the First Amendment was written so people can do that? Do you think the First Amendment was to allow people to have freedom of speech even to the point of treason? Do you think the freedom of speech that God has given us is to be absolute? I don't think so. I was reading a lawyer's blog about this, and he says there, there are examples of speech that are not covered in the First Amendment. And I mentioned one before, uh, which is treason. You, you, you're not allowed to just talk and give the nation secrets, especially if you're a government official or a, a, a military personnel, to give government secrets to another nation. That would be, would be treason. You could end up in jail the rest of your life or something like that. Well, that, well I'm just exercising my freedom of speech, aren't I? Well, <laughs> no, you're not. You can't do that. Uh, so this, this lawyer's blog was saying that other examples of uh, things not covered in freedom of speech is one that's ap- that applies to our problem in this community, child pornography. You can't have a freedom of speech to do that. You can't have obscenity, and you can't have true threats. In other words, you can't threaten someone's life. Oh, I'm just exercising my freedom of speech. But I'm, I'm planning on beating you to a pulp and, and then killing you. Well, you know what? If you, if you threaten someone like that, you could end up in jail. So Micah's accusations uh, were intensified in verse 10 here when he says that the rulers build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with violent injustice. And the classic case study of of such violent injustice and bloodshed is Jezebel and her scheming. You remember Jezebel's scheming and giving false accusations um, so that her husband can coveted Naboth's vineyard could get that vineyard. So false accusations were given and the man was put to death and then her lovely husband, King Ahab, acquired the vineyard. But that sort of case study, you could say in Scripture, historical example, is not the only one. Micah was saying that that kind of thing was going on during his ministry. When the word of the Lord came to Micah, that sort of injustice was going on. Now, God through Micah rebuked bribery as well. Verse 11, her leaders pronounce judgment for a bribe. So you can imagine you have a legal case going before judges. And the judge has to decide between two individuals who he's going to judge in favor of. But instead of going according to what's legal, what God's law says, he's going to go for the one who has the most money and make the decision for the one who gives him the money behind the table or after the, or maybe before the, the judgment. That would be uh, taking a bribe that perverts justice. Justice is perverted because God's holy law is ignored in such matters. Uh, Exodus 23.8 says, God says this, You shall not take a bribe, 
for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of justice. You've heard me talk about this before. The difference between lobbyists and bri- those who commit bribery. I, 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 was re- I was looking up at this today and... Um, they, some, one, one legal group gives a, an example. Here's the chart. You have a special interest group who wants some political action, and then you have the politician. So if the special interest group goes directly to the politician, that's bribery. But you put a middleman in there, in the middle, called the lobbyist, and he gives the money to the middleman, the lobbyist, and the lobbyist gives the money to the political official, and that's lobbying. It's not bribery, it's lobbying. Well, uh, I don't know. You can call it by a different name, but I think it's still bribery. Um, uh, now, I mean, uh, I'm not an expert on this, but from what I understand, if, you, if you're going to run, I heard that if you're going to run for like House of Representatives or something like that, the typical amount of money that's needed is like $1.6 million for them to be successful in their campaign. I mean, and honestly, people don't have that kind of money. They're not going to be successful. And so I don't know. I, I don't know how you can reform the system and make it any different to where people can actually um, have a system where all, so much money is not being given in, in regards to this matter. Bribery uh, subverts uh, the cause of justice. God also gave a rebuke here. Uh, against the religious leaders. Look at verse 11. He said of Zion and Jerusalem, her leaders pronounce judgment for a bribe. Talking again about the, the government leaders. Her priests instruct for a price and her prophets divine for money. Here in verse 11, he's lumping those in government who take a bribe with priests and with prophets who he would say are taking a bribe as well they're all those who are compromised because of money now there are cases i believe where we could have it in the modern church where leaders are compromised because of the issue of money as well um, i'm thinking of an example of Let's say you have a congregation, and the congregation has wealthy donors who give the vast majority of tithes and offerings. And then the minister's thinking to himself, well, if, if this man or this family, this family leaves the church, we, we won't be able to survive. So he comes up to the pastor and says, I don't want you teaching and preaching on that anymore. And then he's conf- maybe so the the money is the influence on what he's going to preach, rather than on what God's word says. And you know that could be a. I'm so thankful. I, th- I thank the Lord that we don't have that problem in this church. If people trying to be persuasive in saying don't teach and preach about X, Y, and Z, because the actual fact of the matter is that a minister should be allowed to preach what he believes according to his conscience, is firmly based on God's word, not based upon where the money goes or where the money's coming in. Money shouldn't have such an influence upon a preacher. 
Let's look next at this presumption and coming judgment. Look at the middle of verse 11 again. Yet they lean on the Lord, saying, Is not the Lord in our midst? Calamity will not come upon us. So all those who are governing, who are, you could say, rulers of the government, maybe on the the broader level or on the local level in, in Jerusalem, and those who are leaders in the church, they're all saying, Is not the Lord in our midst? Calamity will not come upon us. The basis for such assumption would be, we are children of Abraham. We are children of the promise. Well, Jesus says God can raise up children of Abraham from stones, don't you know? And Jesus also rebukes him and says, if you were Abraham's seed, you would follow after me. But your father is not Abraham. Your father is often the devil for those who basically denied and hated and sought to kill the Lord Jesus. But getting back to the text, um, they're making this wrong assumption here. Now, think about it. You got Isaiah telling you, the prophet Isaiah telling you there's a coming judgment. You've got Jeremiah, Micah. You have all all sorts of prophets coming coming to you, telling you to repent of your evil ways, because if you don't, judgment's coming. Well, I don't like that message, so I'm going to pay another prophet and get the message I want. And that's what they did. They, they paid another prophet to give them a favorable message of peace and safety. Um, again, uh, there, there are many people uh, in modern society who want to go to the preacher who gives them the message that they want. They want to go to a preacher who has uh, the message that makes them feel comfortable rather than hearing what God has to say to them. There are many, I would say, in our community who have the wrong assumption saying this, the Lord is in our midst. Calamity will not come upon us. A group, main group would be the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, and other cults. If you ask them, they would say that God is on their side. The Lord is in our midst. Calamity won't come upon us because we are witnesses, witnesses for Jehovah. Um, I, do think, I do think that if we have the option and you feel confident, you should try to be persuasive even with these people. And when you are persuasive, you can witness Christ unto them. And if you're doing it in the right fashion, they're really not going to want to come back again because they're going to realize, you know what, this person knows that book and maybe I don't feel comfortable being able to talk to them about it. Uh, I told one of these Jehovah's Witnesses that came to our house this past Monday, I said, you have no ground or basis for denying the doctrine of hell. It's all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. You have no basis for denying that Jesus Christ is not the eternal begotten Son of God, that Jesus Christ is not God. And I asked him twice. Doubting Thomas says, My Lord and my God. What do you do with that passage? Was he wrong? No answer. 
But when, you know, when they left, they say, well, uh, we don't think we're going to be coming back because we're, yeah, we're, <laughs> we're here to gather sheep, but we don't want to debate. Because they can't debate because they have no basis. Because they're, they're, they're wrongly assuming that the Lord is on their side. But what they're doing, they're twisting and contorting the Bible to give a message and to give a doctrine of what they feel comfortable with. We're not, our founder is not comfortable with the doctrine of hell, neither are we, so therefore we're not going to teach it. Well, don't you want whatever religion you have to be based upon your holy book? Yeah, it's, it's strange. Another time where someone could wrongly assume that God is in their midst and that calamity will not come upon them is the hypocrite. Um, the hypocrite would say something like this. They're, well, they're living in sin, wickedness, but they're, they're covering it up maybe. Or maybe they might outright say to themselves, it doesn't matter how I live because Christ's blood covers me. I can, I can cheat on my wife or I can cheat on my husband or I could look at pornography all the time. It doesn't matter because Christ's blood covers my sin. Uh, we call this antinomianism. That means against a law. And in context, a person like this is against God's moral law. Um, to combat antinomianism and this wrong-headed assumption that God is for us, yet the person is living in hypocrisy, I want us to look at two particular passages. The first is 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians 4. I'm going to turn there. First Thessalonians 4, verses 1 through 8. <coughs> Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us instruction as how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter of because the Lord is the avenger of all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warn you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. If you are a person who is outright wicked, committing um, transgressions such as defrauding your brothers or sisters, or defrauding your company, or sexual immorality, yet you don't turn from such wickedness and you think, oh, well, Christ's blood covers me. I don't care. I'm, I, I'm, I'm covered in the blood of the Lord Jesus. What does this passage say? If you're living like that, you're not rejecting man, but you're rejecting God 
who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So that would be the wrong assumption, wouldn't it? Another passage we're going to look at is 1 Corinthians 6. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 6. Starting at verse uh, 8. It says, You yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. To put it another way, God will not be mocked. God will not be mocked. People who are saying, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a disciple of Christ, yet are living in these sorts of sins in an unbridled fashion, who are not caring to bridle themselves or to turn from sin, they are mocking God. But the good news of the gospel is that God transforms people from this way of life. Verse 11, Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. I'm not saying that we can please God by perfectly obeying the law, because we can't. However, a Christian should be marked by one who desires to obey God. Um, Law-keeping, you could say, and other forms of good works uh, are things that we do so that um, we might show ourselves to truly be children of God. Again, we're not saved by law-keeping. We're not saved by works, lest any one of us should ever boast. But we are Christ's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. We're God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Ephesians 2.10 You're not saved by law-keeping, but if you're a Christian, you're saved to shine as a light in the kingdom, which means, uh, as Paul talks about, sanctification, you're called unto sanctification, which means fleeing sexual immorality, fleeing those sins. So again, Micah then here is foretelling of a coming judgment. He looks at these religious leaders who are compromising and twisting justice, and he looks at the religious leaders and they are receiving a bribe and teaching not what God taught them to teach, but what is based upon the money. And here's what he says in verse 12. Therefore, on account of you compromisers, therefore, on account of you, Zion will be plowed as a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the temple will become high places of a forest. God fulfilled his word. 
He did destroy the temple. He leveled it to its foundation. And then it was later on rebuilt. And then later that second temple was destroyed again because of the wickedness and unbelief of the, of the people. But we know that there is, as we look at this judgment, coming judgment, there's, we could say this is judgment with a little g. I'm sorry, little j. <laughs> judgment with a little j. But there's a greater coming judgment, namely God judging the world in the last day. And for all those who assume wrongly and would say, the Lord is in our midst, calamity will not come upon me. If you're not covered with the blood of Christ, if Jesus Christ is not your Lord and Savior, if you're not, li- if you're not living for Him but living for yourself, you will not stand in that coming judgment. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we, we thank you for Christ our Lord. And we do thank you that because of Jesus, because of his blood and righteousness, we do confess that we are sinners justly deserving your displeasure. But we praise you and thank you that you sent your only begotten Son to suffer and die for sinners such as us. Help us, we pray, to live for him. Help us to flee those sins that so easily beset us and build us up as a holy and righteous people. Forgive us of our sins and help us, we pray, to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ and to embrace him demonstrating much fruit, some 30, some 60, and some even a hundredfold. For we ask all these things in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. For our closing hymn, let's turn to uh, 475. Who trusts in God a strong abode will stand and sing 475.